The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And it's always good at the beginning of a program also to use more of our imagination to realize that we're here together. And of course, many people listen later uh, when it's convenient. So just that open sense, not even just the current members of the Common Ground community, but our wider community of human beings, maybe who knows, other living beings that are interested in this awakening process. And uh, last week, if you weren't, or not last week, uh, I want to thank Shelley Graff for teaching last week. I was leading an online retreat for the Southern Dharma community out of North Carolina. Um, so Shelley taught last Sunday, but two weeks ago, I believe I spoke about uh, the Buddhist teachings on the middle way, and one way to think about that middle way is understanding the real limitations of all our habits of domination, trying to dominate our body, dominate our friends, dominate other people, whatever it might be. And the other end of that spectrum is any kind of giving up or helplessness, it's too much. And so that, you know, in the tradition it said the Buddha's first teaching was talking about how domination, acquisition, control doesn't work, and how giving up doesn't work. And I want to continue talking about that today and really understanding you know, the work we do, the awakening, the opening to the moment, the willingness to be sensitive and with practice, moments of being fully open and intimate and undefended. And that really is what sets up this learning. But there's <laughs> there's a big ask to this opening process, which is we have to meet our world and initially our world as our body and all of its tensions and numbnesses and patterns that exist on this more basic level of our body, but also opening to our world. And there's a very powerful metaphor in um, a wonderful new book by Isabel Wilkinson. Some of you might know this uh, journalist, writer, won the Pulitzer Prize wrote a wonderful book called The Warmth of Other Suns uh, a while back, uh, I think based on thousands of interviews with black families that were part of this migration in the 1900s from the south up to the northern cities and just about how that all went. Um, really powerful history to understand better. But the more recent book is called Cast, and... Uh, this is a section that was an excerpt of that book that was published in the New York Times just a few weeks ago, maybe the er in early July, in the New York Times Sunday Magazine. And uh, the article in the New York Times was titled, America's Enduring Caste System, again by Isabel Wilkerson. And she uses this image of an old house. I'm imagining that she probably owns an old house and, uh, and just all the quirks and uh, things that once you're in the house you begin to discover, even if you 
feel like you did a good job when you were buying the house, uh, there probably it's good to know or imagine that there's a lot that will be learned over the years. And so I want to read a little bit of this because I think it helps us understand our predicament, like how easy it is for us to go toward patterns of domination and control and I'll get my act together, I'll get this house together, I'll get this world together, I'll impose some meaning that won't give me a semblance of control or I'm going to give up. It's too complex, it's too unpleasant, it's too difficult. And uh seems to make a lot of sense just in this example. So here's what she writes. America is an old house. We can never declare our work the work over. Wind, flood, drought, inhuman upheavals batter a structure that is already fudding whatever flaws were left unattended in the original foundation. When you live in an old house, you may not want to go into the basement after a storm to see what the rains have wrought. Choose not to look, however, at your own peril. The owner of an old house knows that whatever you are ignoring will never go away. Whatever is lurking will fester, whether you choose to look or not. Ignorance is no protection from the consequences of inaction. Whatever you are wishing away will gnaw at you until you gather the courage to face which you would rather not see. We in this country are like homeowners who inherited a house on a piece of land that is beautiful on the outside, but whose soil is unstable loam and rock, heaving and contracting over generations, cracks patched, but the deeper ruptures waved away for decades, centuries even. Many people may rightly say, I had nothing to do with how this all started. I have nothing to do with the sins of the past. My ancestors never attacked indigenous people, never owned slaves. And yes, not one of us was here when this house was built. Our immediate ancestors may have had nothing to do with it, but here we are, the current occupants of a property with stress cracks and bowed walls and fissures in the foundation we are the heirs to whatever is right or wrong with it. We did not erect the uneven pillars or joists that they are ours to deal with now. Any further deterioration is, in fact, on our hands. Unaddressed, the ruptures and diagonal cracks will not fix themselves. The toxins will not go away, but rather will spread, leach, and mutate as they already have. When people live in an old house, they come to adjust to the idiosyncrasies and outright dangers skulking in the old structures. They put buckets under wet ceiling, prop up groaning floors, learn to step over the rotting wood treads in the staircase. And this is the part that I think is very powerful, especially powerful. She writes, the awkward becomes acceptable and the unacceptable becomes merely inconvenient live with it long enough, and the unthinkable becomes normal. Exposed over the generations, we learn to believe that the incomprehensible is the way that life is supposed to be. So, of course, you know, these habits in Buddhism, we might call them uh, the unwholesome roots. 
you know, like the deeply ingrained habits of dealing with living, owning an old house, which means the karma of our existence, you know, this body, this heart and mind conditioned by my culture, by my family, the people who raised me, the situation at hand, the pandemic, climate crisis, systemic injustices built into our economy and to our way of governing ourselves. This is our home. And uh, it's not to say that there's nothing to love or appreciate in the home, but we, you know, we don't get to pick and choose. We get the whole thing just as it is. And we have to have a lot of honesty. You know, it's been decorated, painted over, plastered over. So what's on the surface isn't the whole story. And that's, that's not just true with the whole package of my life, but every little piece, this marriage, this relationship I have with a child or with a pet or with my job or with this group of people, with this aspect of society, each one is a reflection, you know, of a big mess. In a sense, no one person owns, you know, made it happen. It happened interdependently. But even though I didn't do it, we can't escape the responsibility. Like, we have every incentive and every responsibility to see it clearly, to see it in its depth and breadth so that we can show up because the domination doesn't work, giving up doesn't work, and distraction doesn't work. These are the three unwholesome roots, right? Where domination is kind of a greed, like I'll use my resources, I'll use my privilege, I'll use whatever I can get my hands on to make it the way I think will make me happy. I'll acquire those conditions, those circumstances. So we have enough confidence in our right to engage, in our power to sort of act out our will to get what we want. And then, finally then, I'll be able to relax that effort to dominate because I'll have what I want once and for all. It will be mine forever, right? You see what a lie it is. But, but how often that some version of that dominates our mind, that animates our life. And then, of course, eventually we're frustrated or circumstances change and we're more in the mode of helplessness and being the victim and wanting to give up, as if that strategy leads to release and happiness and freedom. Oh, it's too much. It's too complex. I don't want to deal with it. It's too painful. And somehow believing that there's a place we can go hide. And then when we act out that sort of animating quality of wanting to give up, wanting, thinking that despair and giving up leads somewhere, it will be abandoned because it doesn't. It just gets tighter and tighter, heavier and heavier, and darker and darker. And even the sort of third unwholesome root of delusion or just distraction, denial, is somehow imagining that all of it, life, is kind of a game, doesn't really matter, 
take what you can get. Again, we see that that denial and distraction when we look carefully enough, we see how stressful it is. That we don't want to acknowledge the deep resonating truth that it does matter how we're showing up. That denial and distraction and pretending, being oblivious, that it's a real weight. We got to work harder and harder at pretending that it doesn't matter. So this is this is the working ground. So whatever pointing out instructions, spiritual teachings we re, we have received in our lives, you know we we might think, you know, as we often do, that you know I need a good, nice place to do my spiritual practice, and we have these ideas, these stereotypic ideas of the perfect Buddhist retreat center, the perfect cabin when no one will bother us, or the perfect home and career and family and then I'll become a spiritual being but uh, this other way of understanding our work where we acknowledge the old house that we've inherited this is our karma one thing is for sure you know we were born into this body into this kind of conditioning received down through our culture and conditioning of our families of origin and all those other conditioning forces this is how it is so whatever freedom whatever spiritual release is possible if it if it's really worth anything it would have to be relevant with these conditions that I'm finding myself in otherwise it's kind of a um idealistic, you know, imagining. Like often thing, you know, conceptions of heaven or conceptions of salvation have this sort of far off place. Don't really can't really understand them directly in our experience. So again, just to review um, as we just sense out our lives, we we need, you know, as a living being, we need an animating force. We need energy and some amount of confidence, some amount of inspiration just to live our life. And the ways we've been conditioned is to use greed and domination and to use fear and uh, hate and other kinds of depressing uh, forces like distraction and denial, numbness, to get by, to sort of help us do the next thing, live through into the next moment. And of course, it's <clears throat> those so-called unwholesome roots, as we call them in the Buddhist tradition of greed, hatred, and delusion, these kind of go-to animating forces for us so much of the time, they don't work, but it's what we know, what the mind knows. And this mind is this natural process that's really driven onward by habit, right? So we tend to do what we've done before, even if it's not working, keep doing the same thing. So something has to break that cycle. And that's, you know, running into some pointing out instructions, somebody 
says something out of the box. Hey, you know what? Greed, hatred, and delusion as trustworthy forces in my heart don't lead to greater well-being for myself or for others. They're destructive. They're unhelpful. So what are the alternatives? And so we get interested, right? We listen. And this is the first part of wisdom. Like, are we willing to acknowledge the limitations of greed, hatred, and delusion? So that we just, even if we don't have a clue, at least we become somewhat of a student who's able to listen. Well, what would non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion, or whatever is not that, what, what might I be able to rely on as an animating, something to get me up in the morning, something to, something to help me keep showing up to what needs to be done in my life? Right? What, what might that actually feel and look like in the ordinary reality of my moment? When I do, like in now, keep giving this talk. What does my heart rely on or draw upon? So the, the basic way the Buddha talked about wisdom is, first we have to bump into something that is out of the box, and we have to trust whatever we're reading or hearing enough to do the second part of wisdom, which is to think about the new information we've gotten. To think about it, we might use the word contemplate or reflect upon. Because we're, we're beginning to integrate, we're using the ideas, like somebody says, you know, have you tried uh, relying on being more present, more intimate with the body? And just feeling what's there under the surface, the energetic holding, the woundedness, the heaviness, the lightness, the joy. Right? And that kind of intrigues us just intellectually. And so then we start to think about it. You know, we take a walk. Or we sit down, sitting outside on a bench somewhere. So what would that mean to be, to find value in being intimate, to find value in being present with embodiment, with this lived experience? And we use the ideas and we start to act on them in the moment, check them out. That famous phrase from the Buddha, Ehi Pasiko, come and see, come and check it out. Hear these teachings and then check them out. So we begin to play with them and reflect on them. And that's what leads to the deepest part of wisdom we call insight, the surprising moment because we've been reflecting and contemplating and checking out the more the initial intellectual, you know, pointing out, hey, have you considered being awake, being mindful, being present with your experience, being open and intimate with your experience? And we reflect on, and then the mind or the heart sees or experiences something it hasn't seen or experienced before, about the way it is, the way it always has been, but because the mind has been relying on greed, anger, delusion, and the obliviousness or the superficiality of greed, hatred, and delusion, it's not known that. So it wakes up, it sees something that it hasn't been seen, that waking up um, 
my teachers say, at least is surprising. Even though we've been told intellectually what we're going to see when we wake up, the actual experience of the heart opening to Dhamma the way it is, is always surprising and has the flavor of liberation. And that's that, that's a really useful way now as we are get, being given from the Buddha the, this concept of the three wholesome roots as opposed to the very common, we probably know reasonably well, unwholesome roots of our life, the moment being animated by what we want, greed, what we're afraid of, hate, and distraction, denial, delusion, obliviousness, thinking that it doesn't matter. These are just different ways of talking about delusion, the third of the three unwholesome roots. So now we get that information, we get the information like just to point out, there's something that's not greed, that's beautiful and animating and trustworthy. You know, and whether we call that renunciation or generosity or contentedness, and there's something that's not hate, and whether you call that love or compassion or deep valuing of non-harming, and there's something that's non-delusion, and you can call that intimacy or openness, clarity, seeing things as they are. And this these three, let's just put them as wholesome desires. The wholesome desire to give and let go. The wholesome desire to take care of, right? Love, to appreciate, to support others, and to support oneself. And this non-delusion is really the beautiful and wholesome desire to understand deeply. I want to see, I want to understand. And these, you know, desire isn't ultimately bad. Desire with identification or desire animated by greed, hatred, and delusion leads to stressful states. But the de desire to give and let go, the desire to care for and to support, and the desire to understand, these animating desires are liberating. They're not stressful. They don't lead to heavy states. And then, you know, going back to this image from Isabel Wilkinson about uh, the old house. Now, of course, she was mostly talking about caste and racism and just the social order, how that's structured a lot around race, but also around gender, sexual orientation, class, education, even body size, abilities, um, physical abilities. So the way that this not so well seen, but almost invisible, but yet inherent structure um, sort of oppresses us because we're caught in that unseen structure. And it's complex, like the way it's self-reinforcing even if we're at, uh, at one of these spectrums where we're not privileged, but we're being oppressed, whatever that might be. But somehow we've all had the Kool-Aid. There's a famous book written a while back now, but I remember reading it 
when I was a grad student in education, um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed and uh, Paulo Freire. And it just talks about how like when we're teaching anybody, but especially around these deeper spiritual and political awakenings, you know, it's not that often the educational model is like students, children are like empty vessels and you just need to fill them up with information and then they're good to go. But what Paulo Freire understood and then the book is really about um, it's like whenever someone is oppressed with their ignorance, their position, their location, that that has to be removed before they're able to sort of live in a different way, be animated by not greed, hatred, and delusion, but non-greed, non-hatred, and delusion, non-delusion. And it reminds me of a lecture I heard a long, long time ago at the University of Chicago, and a professor was talking about the Jews wandering in the desert for 40 years after being liberated from slavery in Egypt. And uh, he was just speculating, of course, from a political theory point of view, like why did they wander in the desert for 40 years? And I just thought he had this brilliant suggestion. Of course, you know, it's not something that can be proved, but or whether it's even, you know, historically true. But the idea that all of those people who left Egypt had been enslaved and enslaved in Egypt for generations. And so that was their conditioning. You know, that's how greed, hatred, delusion worked through them. Just like the oppressors, the enslavers in Egypt, you know, they were also caught in that same system of ignorance, greed, hatred, delusion from a different location, clearly. But in order to sort of start from a fresh place, they needed all the people who were raised in that condition by that system to live out their lives so that when they landed in the new land, started a new life, they wouldn't just repeat, you know, act out the same tendencies, the same grooves, habits of mind. So this is the work of our practice. You know, it isn't like we can go right to non-greed, non-hate, non-delusion and just let those beautiful, liberating, animating desires, you know, to give, to support, to be generous, to be content, the desire to care for, to not harm, the desire to be clear and understand. We just can't go there because we have this pedagogy, you know, this internalized system of oppression. All of us, even the very privileged people, we have this. Ways that we trust greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, and different for each of us depending on our location and our conditioning. So a lot of the work of stabilizing present moment awareness is to over and over and over again, like in one sit, and then throughout one day to see over and over and over again all of the oppressive tendencies to lead with greed, to lead with hate, to lead with distraction and denial because that's what the heart knows. And to see over and over again, honey, that's not the way. Like to see in living color, this doesn't lead to release. 
This leads to patterns of oppression for myself and others. This is not the way. This does not feel right. In that very direct sense, so it, it, it ends up being very trustworthy. You know, so like take an example of an addictive pattern. When I'm stressed, I overeat. Or when I'm stressed, I look for a stupid TV program to watch and distract myself. Or when I'm stressed, I'm aversive, aversive towards my spouse or irritable toward my pet, or, you know, resentful toward my boss, or whatever it might be, you know, projecting, acting out my hurt on people or things that don't really deserve my hate or my irritation. But we see, we see it now from the relative stability and good feeling of samadhi, of that stable, stabilized, relatively continuous present moment awareness, which feels trustworthy, feels relatively good to be present. So then I'm willing to see how so many of my psychological, emotional, social habits don't help. Because I have this, like we... Um, chanted, you know, with loving-kindness, with metta as a basic attitude that the heart is stabilized with, that basic goodness, that basic friendliness, then I, I have the stability to see all of these unhelpful habits and normalize them without a lot of self-hatred, without falling into more of the same, hating myself really wanting to be perfect, where I don't have those negative habits. You know, that's the domination. I'll dominate myself and become this perfect version of Mark. So those are the, when, we, when we're not stabilized with present moment awareness and the stability of loving kindness, we can't really see these patterns of, these oppressive patterns of the three unwholesome roots animating our life. And animating the lives of those around us, too. Of course, we learn from both how it's animating our own personality and how it's animating the wider society and our friends and family. We see it, we see it, we see it, and we turn it into insight. This is part of the contemplation and reflection. We hear the news, the spiritual teaching, three unwholesome roots, three wholesome roots, right? And that our minds are oppressed, right, are entangled. We've drunk the Kool-Aid of greed, hatred, and delusion. We trust them to save us, greed, hatred, and delusion. That's the lie. But we believe it. And not wanting to believe it is not the way to be free from believing it. We have to really see the lie over and over and over. See that it doesn't lead to my well-being or anybody's well-being. And that really opens us to seeing more and more how well non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion take care of our well-being and the well-being of others. So part of what we're doing is we're unhooking from the oppressive patterns that have been established in our heart. There they are. This is that old house. We may not want to have the life want to have the conditioning we have, want to have the world we have, but this is the world we have. 
This is our working ground. So there's no salvation, no freedom, no liberation without owning our karmic predicament of this old house. And uh, we could get by, some of us, more maybe some of us more privileged of us who have health, good-looking, whatever it might be, white um, in this culture, you know, but whatever privileges we might have, it might be like that's new, relatively new plaster, relatively new paint job, but it doesn't really acknowledge <clears throat> how old the house is and what the house has been built on for so many years. And all of those underlying patterns will ultimately have their say. There's no escaping. There's only coming into it and seeing the house was built on greed, hatred, and delusion. And we have to see that those animating forces, as much as they look like they make sense in a moment, don't actually help. And we don't know how many times we have to see it. We just keep seeing it, you know. Let the habit of being greedy, the habit of being hateful, hating ourselves, hating others, throwing something, someone out of our heart, including ourselves, right? That's what hatred is. Delusion, thinking that not noticing, not paying attention is somehow a lasting strategy. We have to wear out those habits by seeing what they actually deliver. They don't deliver happiness. They deliver more stress for ourselves and for everybody else. I don't know if anybody caught, but um, Krista Tippetts was interviewing Jane Goodall this week on the program, program the National Public Radio program on being. And uh, I'm guessing most of you know Jane Goodall is this famous primatologist uh, just a famous scientist who studied chimpanzees mostly in Africa and more recently the last 30 years or so has been a very powerful activist both in terms of the environment and just uh, understanding the predicament that humanity and all species are in on the planet and just a, a really wise person. And she talks about how she sees love as the most enlivening, energizing emotion that we ha that we humans have. Like, here we are, and it's not like we have, it's not even that the old house is all kind of freshly painted. It's, it's like actively falling apart when we're honest and we look around. And there's things that have not been addressed and... Uh, we're in a real crisis with this house. And um, she talks about, like if you really want something, like the wholesome desire to live in harmony, to live in a way that's enlivening for ourselves and for everyone, which seems like a setup. You know, we're, when we're on a planet where life eats life, it can seem a little idealistic to say, you know, I want to live in a way that's good for my well-being and every being's well-being. But even though we don't know what that looks like when we have a house like this, a planet like this, 
it feels right, right, to care about everything, even when we do, you know, need to eat plants at least, if not other creatures, and that there is this power dynamic that's always playing itself out because we're sharing space with each other. And she says, if you really want something like this deeper harmony, harmonizing, if you work really hard, take advantage of opportunities and never give up, you'll find a way. And I think it's really about this shift in motivation. Here's another quote from Jane Goodall. Only if we understand can we care. Only if we care will we help. Only if we help we shall be saved. So it's not so much like finding the clever solution about how to resolve the climate crisis or how to resolve racism in the United States or how to resolve the economic injustice, injustices. It's more about the leaning in, like it, the kind of realizing there is an old house, it's falling apart, it's my life, it's my world, and that being saved, as uh, Jane Goodall is talking about, it really arises from this commitment, this wholehearted commitment to our karma, which is initially, first and foremost, this body right now, this embodied experience, what the feeling, the qualities that are here in the body, in the heart, in the mind, and then in concentric circles, out owning it all, because here we are, right in the middle of this world, this old house. And that uh, it's, it's like the wholesome desire to want to understand, that's the non-delusion. And the wholesome desire to care, that's the non-hate. And the wholesome desire to help, you know, that generosity to give, and it's these wholesome roots that, in a you know, it's not the best way maybe to say it, but it's the wholesome roots that are our salvation. Not where they lead, not where non-greed, non-hate, non-delusion lead, but it's the, whole, un, the wholesome roots themselves, the sort of trusting and aligning and harmonizing with non-greed, generosity, non-hate, love, non-delusion, this intimacy, this turns out to be free, freedom, liberating. And it doesn't mean this old house, we have to imagine it's not this old house that's crumbling, that has some serious problems that need addressing. So the liberation doesn't depend on the work being done. It depends on a full and complete and wise ownership or application of our heart to the work at hand. That's what's liberating. It's not about utopia, it's about showing up. It's always so nice to be with everyone. Wishing everyone a good week. Take care now. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, 
www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.